You may be seated. And good morning. Some of you may have already discovered in your bulletin there's a little sheet of paper that looks like a list, and that's exactly what it is. And I would invite you to take that and follow along, and if you'd prefer to make some notes from that, that would be, that would be just fine. The Epistle to the Hebrews. Those early Jewish followers of Jesus facing persecution from family and friends is one of the richest and yet most challenging books in the New Testament. But when we come to the final chapter, as we just read this morning, the writer's closing remarks, the tone dramatically changes. What we have here are what we would call sound bites on a wide range of topics. Very little detail, no lengthy explanations, just brief reminders of how we're to conduct ourselves as God's children, as citizens of his kingdom, or what I'm calling today our spiritual to-do list. How many of you make to-do lists? You just have to, if I don't write it down sometimes, and even then, sometimes. Now be honest, ladies. How many of you make to-do lists for your husbands? Some, some of you have elevated that to an art form, I dare say. And we, we have a name for those, right? Honey-do list, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I've included a list for us today as well, and you'll notice that I'm couching these reminders not so much in terms of doing, but in terms of being, because the fact is that our doing almost always springs from within, from our being, that is, who we really are. And I stress this because the work of the Holy Spirit in changing our lives is not just about getting us to act right, to behave, but rather to be right, to be the kind of person who normally and habitually does what is right. And there's really nothing new or novel about any of this. The New Testament is, is littered with cross-references to all six of these reminders, and of course many more. All of them were, to put it another way, the standing orders for all ancient believers, even as they are for us as well. So, with all that in mind, let's begin. Item number one, be loving. Hebrews 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Not surprisingly, this tops the list. Loving God first and loving others as ourselves. Well, that summarizes all of God's laws, all the thou shalts, all the thou shalt nots. The writer speaks of brotherly love, and that is the Greek word Philadelphia. That's exactly, it's spelled exactly like the city in, of course, English letters. Of course, this is not limited to our blood relatives or even our in-laws, challenging as those relationships can be. No, the New Testament constantly refers to the church as family. That means that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, God the Son became one of us. We call that the incarnation, in theological speak. And we become one with him by faith, by the new birth, the miracle of being born of water and spirit as our Lord described it to Nicodemus. And we are therefore accepted into the family of God. Specifically, the writer mentions two forms of brotherly love here. One is hospitality. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. One, of course, naturally thinks of, of Abraham, who entertained uh, those who were just, he thought, were travelers. And, of course, uh, one of them was the incarnated Christ. In fact, the pre-incarnate Christ, I should say. The Greek, literally, of, of this word, 
of hospitality means the compassionate love of strangers. Travel was difficult in those days. It was slow. It was tiresome. Uh, such lodging as there was back then was often unsafe and always expensive. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't believe Scripture is requiring this of us, that you and I just willy-nilly open our homes to total strangers who ask us right off the street. Uh, you'd better have a very powerful leading of God before you start doing that. But certainly we can display what one writer calls a bountiful, profuse entertainment of friends, relations, neighbors, and the like. And I would also add that we should focus not so much on the execution of it. And as I was thinking of that, as I, as I thought of the wording of that, the image in my mind came of Martha Stewart. Some of you are pretty good at that, and you, you're little Martha Stewart's, but that's not, that's not what we're getting at here. It's not so much the execution, but rather the attitude, the frame of mind. And by that, I mean that we display a generous spirit towards others, especially, though, towards those who are in need. The second branch of brotherly love is aimed at sufferers, those who are suffering. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In other words, put yourself in their shoes. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, the body of Christ. In those days, prisoners had very little in the way of care during their incarceration. They relied greatly upon the aid and compassion of friends and relatives. And we see that illustrated, do we not, in the experiences of St. Paul during his various imprisonments. But again, let's not limit this uh, to actual prisoners. Let's see this as generally encompassing all who suffer. For example, those who are alone and those who are lonely, those with transportation needs, those who are disabled, those who have little or no family around. And that is something in our day and in our culture as families have relocated all over, all over this country and are from somewhere else that we're, in, we're seeing more and more of that, of course. Item number two, be pure. Be pure. Verse four. Here's a timely one for your list. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God's standards regarding human sexuality are what they have always been from time immemorial, and they're very simple. If you're single, the order of the day is chastity. If you are married, the order for the day is faithfulness in every respect, period. Am I being judgmental by having that view? No. But God is. Those who ignore this, the writer says plainly and simply, God will judge. And I believe that's in this life as well as in the future as well. Why? Because promiscuity, be it adultery or unmarried sex, defiles what God has said is sacred. In other words, there is no such thing as casual sex. And I want to elaborate on the judgment aspect of that, but... But much of it, as, as I've observed, it comes in the form of sowing and reaping. And I don't just mean some of the obvious bad stuff, but I mean just the brokenness and the disappointment and the heartache that often that lifestyle leads to. And we're going to come back to this one at the end of the sermon. Number three, item three, be content. Chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jeremiah Burroughs was born in England in 1599. He was an English Puritan. He wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian 
contentment. I'll tell you how good it is. It's still in print. You can still get it. Well, if, if that was rare in his day, what is it today? <laughs> I dare say it's nearly extinct. In his day as it is today, though, the one thing that's the same is this, that the greedy person is never content. The greedy person is never generous. The greedy person always wants more. And the greedy person lives in fear of losing what he has. As I thought about that, I thought about that wonderful Italian phrase, la dolce vita. So much for the good life. That doesn't sound like the good life to me. Paul himself could even speak of himself as, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. 2 Corinthians 6.10. What a wonderful paradox that is. I have nothing and yet I possess everything. For we have what Paul had, namely the promise of our Lord. I will never leave you nor forsake you. <clears throat> so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Ultimately, nothing. Item number four, be wise. Verse seven, what does that look like? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I've often told people, it's one thing to learn from your mistakes. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you are hopeless. <laughs> Anyone can learn from his or her mistakes. How much better to learn from others? Not only from their mistakes, but the, the way they have done good things. This is a call, first of all, to reflect on the heroism and faith of those who have gone before us. Scripture calls upon us to consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. We often hear people say, oh, just follow Jesus, don't look at others. That's not what the Bible says. For us, that would also include those that we meet on the pages of Scripture, the apostles and others. It includes those early church fathers, such as Augustine and others. It includes the reformers of the 15th and 16th century, Luther and Calvin and Knox and Anglican martyrs such as Archbishop Cranmer and Bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, and the list goes on and on. Great churchmen of the past like the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and those of contemporaries in our own day who have had influence on us and helped us grow and walk with God. How do we demonstrate our loyalty, our solidarity to with him? Again, Paul gives us an answer in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. To the extent that I follow Christ, you follow me. Now, skipping over to verse 17, the writer continues. It's as if he thinks of this on down the way and adds this note as well on the same, in the same vein. Verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Anglican Philip Edgecombe Hughes says in his comment on this verse, the authority of Christian leaders is exercised in the light of eternity, since eternal issues are involved. In particular, the eternal destiny of the flock over which they have been appointed and the outcome for good or ill in their ministry. They are men who will have to give account to God. And this solemn consideration should affect not only the quality of their leadership, but also the quality of the obedience with which the Christian community responds to that leadership. That is well said. Verse 17 continues, Let them, meaning in, in our case the clergy, let them, let those leaders do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me say on a very personal note, 
But aside from being a parent, this is the most sobering reality of my life. The thought that I must stand before God Almighty and give an account for how well I have faithfully discharged my duties as his servant or not. And to my colleagues in the work of being deacons and priests and bishops, I believe uh, that, that uh, a true sign of our calling, among, among others, is that we do what we do with great joy. Personally, and I, I believe, again, I can speak for my colleagues here, there's nothing that compounds our joy like seeing you, our children, walk in the truth. We can truly say in the words of St. John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Item number five, be bold. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Those Jewish readers of this epistle who first read this letter would know that the Old Testament sacrifices were burned outside the camp during the days of Moses and afterwards. Thus our Lord Jesus also suffered as our sacrifice outside the gate, outside the city walls of the holy city, Jerusalem, abused, despised, and rejected. Now the takeaway for them, as well as for us, as verse 13 says, is this. Therefore, let us go to him. Let us follow him. We're outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. And that's exactly what these, these Christians were experiencing from family and friends and others. And he says, bear it. You see, the place of execution was a place of defilement, and they knew that all too well. Thus, the leaders who had Jesus crucified wanted the bodies removed before that evening, the beginning of the holy feast of Passover. Yet our Lord Jesus, the Holy One, makes it a holy place. Again, Philip Hughes puts it so well. By suffering outside the gate, Jesus identifies himself with the world in its unholiness. While we are unable to draw near to God because of our sin, God draws near to us in the person of his Holy One who on our unholy ground makes his holiness available to us in exchange for our sin, which he bears and for which he atones on the cross. He sanctifies his people and makes them holy. And that's why we begin our worship every Sunday as the crucifer lifts high the cross. Now the takeaway for those early Jewish believers who were being persecuted and shamed is don't give up. Follow Jesus, even if it means going outside the camp. Follow him there to the place where he was despised and rejected. And we do so, as he says earlier in chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And then a curious phrase, despising the shame despising the shame of the cross, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Curious thing, despising the shame. Despising the shame means that while the physical and spiritual pain was very, very real, that our Lord treated the disgraceful and shameful aspects of his public execution and humiliation with contempt, as if they were nothing. We often think of contempt means, means I, I dislike you intensely. I may even hate you. I say I have contempt for you. But, but strictly speaking, to, to despise something, or someone for that matter, means to regard it as unworthy 
of our attention or consideration. Just, it's, it's not a denial thing, but it's just simply saying, that's not going to stick to me. I'm not, that's not even worth considering. And how was he able to do that? Because he saw the glory. He saw the joy of what lay ahead. He knew that in a few days, he would rise from the dead. He knew that in a few more weeks, he would ascend to the Father's right hand, the place of honor and glory. And he knew that someday he would return again to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, whose kingdom will last forever. He knew all that in his mind's eye. He saw that. And so he was able to look at the shameful aspects of of what they did to him. And it was a a disgraceful way for anyone to die in those days. He He just let it go. Number six, be worshipful. Verse 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? The writer is addressing Jewish followers of Jesus whose practice of worship had since the time of Moses included blood sacrifices. The overall theme of this letter is that those are now fulfilled. Those are swallowed up by the one perfect eternal sacrifice of our Lord Jesus at the cross, something we're reminded of every Sunday at the Eucharist. So our worship now is one of thankful praise. What the writer of the Hebrews calls the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now lips suggest that this is more than just our private inner thoughts, though God who searches our hearts knows those as well. It suggests to me vocal praise. In a moment we'll vocally confess our faith, utilizing the words of the Nicene Creed. We sing praises to God as we begin our public worship and at the end as we leave and in between. It's hard to imagine worship without that, isn't it? But surely there's more to it than that. Our text says that we are to do this continually, which includes the other six days of the week as well, does it not? The next verse, verse 16, adds this, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And these are acts of compassion and service. We, we already alluded to some of those that acknowledge God's name. A great example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul says this of the believers in Macedonia. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints, for those who were being persecuted and were in dire straits. Sacrificial obedience, a lifestyle of obedience. This, this to-do, to-do list, uh, it, it, just like the Ten Commandments, is not a series of do's and don'ts. They are rules for thankful living. Not hoops to be jumped through and certainly not to earn God's favor. That's what the finished work of Jesus on the cross accomplished for us, as the book of Hebrews makes clear. But make no mistake, beloved, sacrificial obedience at times will be costly. Now, to illustrate this, I want to go back to the second talking point about being pure. And I saw this article last year in a publication I get. It's the story of a young woman, Jackie Hill Perry. It's her name. I'm just going to read a part of her testimony. And suddenly and randomly, as Paul was struck blind on the Damascus Road, I had the unsettling thought that my sin would be the death of me. Prior to that moment, the sin I wore on my sleeve was that of being a lesbian, a label I had the courage to give myself at the age of 17. 
where it came from made no difference to me. I liked girls, and I knew it. But I don't want to be straight, I said to God, meaning every single word. I had grown up in the traditional black church. I'd heard the preacher speak for God when he, with fire and frenzy on his tongue, read to us from Romans 1 about God giving his creatures over to the sinful desires of their hearts, which included men and women exchanging natural sexual relations for shameful lust toward the members of the same sex. I never once had felt the need to question whether what he said was true. What offended me most was the idea that it, my sin, my kind of love, was to be the death of me. Because if that were true, then surely I would be asked to lay it aside for the sake of life. To those who had heterosexual eyes, our love was a strange thing. To us, it was normal. I loved her and she loved me, but God loved me more. So much so that he wouldn't have me going about the rest of my life convinced that a creature's love was better than a king's love. Homosexuality might have been my loudest sin, but it was not my only sin. By calling me to himself, he was after my whole heart. His intention was to turn it toward him and transform it as only he could enabling me to be holy in how I expressed my sexuality and everything else. I knew that it was not just my lesbianism that had me at odds with God. It was my entire heart. That moment, that epiphany, that my sin left untreated would be the death of me, wasn't a matter of trying to be straight or even trying to escape hell. No, it was about God positioning himself before my eyes so that I could finally see that he is everything he says he is and worthy to be trusted. God let his light shine into the dark corners of my life, and when he did, I saw my sin with full clarity. It was not the glor- as glorious as I once thought, nor was it as good at it as it had promised to be. It was everything God said. It was deadly. In speaking of her ending relationship, ending her relationship, she says this, to leave her, us, our love made no sense, apart from the divine doing of God. She was both my woman and my idol. She was the eye Jesus said to gouge out and the right hand he commanded me to cut off, Matthew 5, 29. Though it was as painful as the extreme act of removing a body, a body part, it was better for me to lose her than to lose my soul. I had no idea what would come next, but, that, but I knew that if Jesus was God and if God was mighty to save, then surely God would be mighty to keep. And ten years later, he is still keeping this girl godly. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to take that little list, take it home with you. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Take your spiritual honeydew list there and go over it this week. Reflect on those passages of Scripture and say, how am I doing with this one? Can I check this one off? Well, we're never going to be able to totally check them off. But how am I doing with this one? What can I do here? How can I be a friend to the sufferer this week? Who do I know that's suffering? And you get the idea. I pray that you'll do that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, the father of lies, our enemy, would convince us that your ways are unreasonable, they're unpopular, they're unnecessary. Father, by your grace, may we, by our steadfast obedience, discover what this young young woman discovered, that you are worthy of our trust and therefore our total obedience. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.